Thanks for inviting me. Uh, I'm really pleased. I'm based in San Francisco. I'm remote. I work remotely for Redmond. Um, but I'm really happy to be here because it's actually very, very rare that you get to talk to people about what you do because it's a very specialized trade. Um, and uh, so in some sense, you're giving me some sort of therapy by letting me talk about what I do, uh, what I've done. Um, I have to apologize a little bit. It's going to be a very informal presentation. This is um, the deck that I did last year for IDW. And it was, uh, I'm going to sort of scream through it and, we'll, and see some points that we'll, we'll talk about. And then I'm going to move forward a, a year. Because in that last year, uh, we moved from using open source tools uh, and collaboration um, across disciplines to build our documentation. Um, but it was hosted on a, a custom and proprietary website and system. And that system was getting very old. And in the last year, we migrated all of our topics to a brand new system that itself is open source. And so just today, it's live. So for the first time. So I don't really have this presentation. I don't have some big deck for you about the new world. Instead, I'm going to talk and show you the new world in contrast to what I'll show you about the old world. So we'll zip through this doc, this, this PowerPoint. And then I'll tell you where we are now and what we've done. And then we'll just, whatever you want to talk about sounds great. I can show you things um, on the Mac. I can show you things on the Windows because I use both of those computers on a regular basis to do the same work. So um, it's, uh, Microsoft is a very different company than it was <laughs> a little while ago. So, uh, so when you're talking about across discipline, what's discipline? So we mean across uh, professional disciplines. That means developers, so marketing people, business people, advertisement, uh, and uh, the writers that do uh, sort of assemble the knowledge in a way that makes it e most e easily consumable by the people who need it, your customers, your partners, uh, whatever it might be. Depends on the situation. So it, the, 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 the world we lived in is we still have, of course, a, a ton of people who are professional technical writers. I'm my, myself, I'm a, I'm a developer writer as opposed to an end user writer uh, or a UI writer, that kind of thing, UX writer. Um, However, uh, the discipline has dramatically contracted because one of the main points of open source, which I'll get to in a minute, is that the fact that at scale there's more good knowledge with more people contributing uh, doesn't mean that it's, not, it's very easy to scale to get all that knowledge. So now actually everybody has to contribute. So the PMs have to write, the devs have to write, the testers have to write, I have to write, and we all work together to collaborate to put together that information. So 10, 15 years ago, I was a writer. I would get a spec from the PM. I would take the spec and wander over, maybe meet the dev and sort of, how, does it, how do you think this might work? I would definitely make friends with a tester because a tester would find out how they failed to implement what was supposed to be in the spec and I needed to know that. And you know, things like this was a little bit more straightforward. So that's what I mean. It doesn't really work that way uh, anymore in, in our field. Uh, which is developer documentation. And is it working? Yeah, sure. There are lots of, lots of this kind of change. Is, this is radical change, so it, it works quite a bit. Let me screen through this, and we'll get to some of the points, and those can be the talking points, because the questions are exactly the ones that most people ask. They're the same ones we, asked, we talked about last year. How many people use like uh, structured XML 
for their documentation for what they do mostly, yeah, exactly. Or HTML, for example, lots of people write in HTML straight away. Um, so uh, that's very, very common. And, and so we don't do that, we use Markdown. Does anybody use Markdown? Actually, a few people do, okay. I'm surprised, actually, but one year ago, this was like anathema to people at IDW. They were just like, you're not in, you're not in, you're not in whatever that XML format is that they want. You're not in OpenDoc. You're not in something like that. It was just crazy. So um, basically, uh, this is the, the theme of why we have to do this, why we have to make this change. Um, the, the, the fact that open source tooling and not proprietary tooling, like anything you can download and use, means that more people can contribute more rapidly. And so instead of having a lot of training ramp up for a custom tool, people can just walk in and use whatever editor they, they happen to love. If the format is open source, there's a lot of documentation. They can learn it at home before they ever even show up. So you have more people bidding for your jobs, working, collaborating with you right off the bat because it's easier for them to get training, easier for them to read wherever. Instead of having to find somebody with a special tooling uh, knowledge and have them fit in or taking three months to get them ramping up, pressing the right button, doing the right thing, and so forth. That's one thing. And the other one is the one I pointed out. At, at the funniest thing about computing, um, which is the field I'm in um, now, is that there's more words being printed than ever before, even though paper died, right? The, the truth is there are more things to write about, more software programs, more uh, interactions with other things in the world than have ever existed. And um, that means more words, which means more people have to write. At internet scale, you can't centralize how that writing works. So what you have to do is guide and let the flow happen and come to the right place, rather than expect that you can build it from the ground up. There is no, uh, in the software world, we talk about like open source code, for example. It's not that open source code produces the best code. It's that if the more people try to produce the best code, if you chop off 5%, which is the only really good code, at scale, that 5% will now be 50 or 100 times larger than it was before when you only tried to hire the very best because you end up failing because there's a bell curve in everybody's ability scale, no matter who you are. And so the result is that at an internet scale, you have to embrace simpler, more useful tools to get your work done because you can't otherwise get all the contributions you need. Yes, you're going to throw some of those out. Yes, some of them not up to snuff. But it turns out that's useful dross, if you will. So that's the main trend that we were going with. Um, this is the Cliff Notes bullet slide. Uh, we used to publish MSDN, um, and, and I say the Scuola Vecchia, the old school, right? Then there was the bubble, bubble crash and explosion, explosion of words. That would be uh, this beautiful 2007 massive global recession. Uh, and what happened is out of that, the companies changed and the world of software changed dramatically. Costs had to fall, but we had more things to sell because we were moving faster in competition with other companies that didn't do what we did, which was try and make everybody use one operating system everywhere all the time and ignore everybody else. At that time was our uh, business model. So that's what we were doing with Azure.com, and I was going to tell you about how we did it right and how we dodged dragons. Now, that was where I'm going to go today. That was yesterday, and we're going to set the table. So let's catch up to the crusty old Microsoft. Um, 
We were developing on MSDN TechNet. We used a custom, custom XML authoring environment based on Word, and collaboration was in Word revisions, and SharePoint um, didn't really help us, we will say. Word is great for revisions and for collaborating around, sending around versions, but SharePoint was not a good multiple uh, versioning system, and if anybody's used a SharePoint uh, site with those URLs, then you know how much you hate it, right, basically. Um, we release typically every three months. We'd, the conversion from XML to HTML was a massive undertaking, and of course you have to standardize on styles across products, and that means cross-product meetings, and cross-product meetings means managers who don't normally talk to each other have to establish their hierarchy versus the other person who's more powerful, and the, more the fight over who's more powerful becomes whether it's like a monospace font or whether it's a cool Comic Sans kind of thing, and that's, you know, you can imagine it's just a nightmare. The pipeline was completely custom software. It was expensive to build, more expensive to maintain, and per Dilbert specifications, it was out of date before it was actually finished. Um, so then the bubble exploded. Uh, you can imagine that these things basically happened, right? Um, Linux, when we say community-driven software and open source, demonstrated that their quality was capable at scale as they scaled out. The speed of features increased radically. We had competition in the cloud, especially, and in mobile devices that were amazing competitive companies. All of them, just wonderful companies. They, and we had to be better, and we couldn't be the same. There's no question about that. And we had huge new audience sizes, right? We weren't just Windows. Now we're Linux and Android and Mac, and then there's this Internet of Things stuff, which we hear so much about and hate because it's going to come to rule our world and eventually invent Skynet and kill us all. Um, I'm going to keep tripping over that. Um, on MSDN, for the work that we were doing, there were 42 million topics. This was last year when I made the slide. I'm quite sure we were well up over 60, maybe 70 million in one year. That's how many more words we were publishing. And that's not just in languages, different languages, because you can only loke so many languages so fast. That's actually new APIs, new products, new versions of products, and so forth. Only 8 million in English, obviously. So the scale is um, much more substantial than almost anybody else on the planet. There are some really big companies in this, very, in this location that, are, that approach that scale. Um, but Microsoft actually owns three of the top ten uh, websites um, by traffic on the, uh, on the internet, and nobody else does. Other, but other people have, you know, very, I mean, Google obviously, be, FB being an amazing website, for, for, but they don't have other ones. We actually run three. So um, collaboration was uh, great for a lot of work, really. You know, you got two people there. Um, but as the number of reviewers and article grew, articles grew, eventually, not happy baby. Not happy baby, right? Every participant had to learn our tools to collaborate, and that was fine when we had plenty of lead time. Oh, we're not publishing that one for another two years before we release that other version. We got time to train. That doesn't work anymore. Let's try and remember, you gotta train, if you gotta waste time to train people, and we're scaling up 20, 10, 20 million words, Right, 20 million topics every year now, right? Because the the the, the curve. I, I should have actually graphed this out from 2000 
because the curve of increasing topics is like that. Um, there, that would not scale. So a digression, right? Um, right? The example is medium.com. Um, the strangest thing is medium.com is just a blog company. Uh, and but it was open source, and the goal is, well, here's uh, what uh, Ben wrote about that. Their, their goal is to collate if any company can get the long tail to publish on their platform. Does anybody know what the long tail means? Right? You get that, that, that's the, the chunk of people that don't write tons of articles, that, that write the most articles, but individually don't contribute tons. So if you get 5 million people writing 5 articles, that's 25 million. And that'll dwarf the short tail, which are those really, which, which, which are those, that one article that gets 5 million, pe 5 million people to watch it. The long tail is what you want. You don't want the, 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 just the few most famous things to be on. And that's the other part that they did is they done efficient, efficiency done at scale. And it's hard to really appreciate this until you really get to um, start to, to have to publish thousands and thousands and then millions and millions and millions of things. You have to, to scale out, you actually have to intake more at a huge scale. It's like swallowing a fire hose in the standard metaphor. You have to bring in all that, all that material, even if you're going to throw away most of it, because there's no other way to publish that many articles. Right? If, I mean, remember, we were talking about 46 million articles, right? It's not small. So what we were doing with our Azure.com last year is we were trying to embrace the best that we could and run harder. This is not strange. Instead of an internal data center and source control, we just started using GitHub. Right? Very simple. Right? Instead of structured XML, which everybody has to learn, or if you don't learn the XML, you have to master the tools that help that understand the validation and the schema enforcement and all that kind of stuff for you. One or the other, you have to learn before you can be productive. Guess what? In Markdown, you can be productive in a day. You can start writing professionally in a day. Okay, it's not structured. It's got problems. But in a day, that's three months of training. It is now three months of writing before the person is really up to speed and moving. Instead of custom word-based authoring, anything that works with text. If you know Markdown, you know it's just text, right? and a pretty easy format for basic HTML conversion. It's just text. Use whatever you want. This is a Mac. There's a Windows machine. Use your tablet with Android. It doesn't matter what you use. It doesn't matter what program you use either. Notepad, text edit, something fancy. Who cares? Windows only. No, nope, no more. Anything that works with text. Which is nice because turns out how many of us have Macs at home and they're writing, we're writing our email on Google Mail or on Gmail, right? Or Facebook or whatever. So you can now actually just do work with the same computer. Even if you don't get hired professionally, right, full time, you're just a contractor, what, where's the, the steep investment to participate in professional activity? None. You just use the stuff you already have. Um, automated validation turns to automated validation that is different than the other kind of automated validation. This is, a, this is an investment we had to make. If you're going to validate Markdown the same way you validate structured X, XML, you're going to have to use a different engine, right? Because Markdown is not structured. Mm -hmm. So now what kind of validation are you going to do? You're going to have to hire some developers for that. 
Fortunately, because it's open source, there's tons of open source software available for validating uh, Markdown. To validate Markdown, typically, Markdown is a completely unstructured language in the sense that there are some general rules. But only last year, actually in the two, last two years, have there been any specifications for Markdown. And those specifications are not actually specifications in the sense that they're not registered with any particular specification body. It's not IEEE. It's not, you know, some uh, other format. It's, it's, this is... Uh, you know, it's not ECMA, it's not nothing. This is just the guy who invented it said, okay, this is what I mean by Markdown. And GitHub got all mad because they had added a bunch of things. So now they have GitHub flavored Markdown, which is also its own specification, which they then called Common Markdown. And then the guy who invented Markdown got mad at them for using Markdown in their Common Markdown phrase. So he threatened to sue them over using Markdown in the Common Markdown, but it's a different spec, even though it's both Markdown. So when you get to the point of the real problem with Markdown is not the multiple specs. The real problem with Markdown is that um, Markdown allows you to put raw HTML in it. And when it detects it, when it's converting Markdown to HTML, it detects raw HTML and then just passes it straight through. That's very useful. So if there's not something funky, there's something funky you want in your documentation, but there's no Markdown for it, you just drop in the HTML and you can do it, right? It just works. Problem with that is if you're an, or it doesn't, but let's just imagine you're a genius, so it works. <laughs> um, the problem with that, if you scale it out, if you're working in a small group, that's not an issue because here there's four or five people talking to each other, it's no big deal. But if you get up past even 20, but in our, in our case, we currently have more than 1,200 contributors to Azure documentation alone. Not SQL Server, not you know, other stuff. 1,200 contributors. At that scale, those guys can put any HTML scripting stuff they want in there. Whatever image they want. I don't know about you, but have you ever been in a situation where somebody went, God, you know, I hope Bob, who's been really, really angry over his paycheck recently, doesn't put something in that doc that he really shouldn't. Now, that usually doesn't happen, but we've all, if you've been in the industry a long time, you've always run into somebody who deliberately mucked up the works. Managers worry about that, right? Not necessarily me. It's pretty rare that somebody gets that idea in their brain, but it happens. More to the point, they often, what they do is they try and they think they know more about HTML than the person who's converting and doing the styling for the website. And so they'll put in some extra thing that doesn't work with the CSS and creates bleh on the page. Right? That's more common. So when I say validation, you have to have some tool that can run over the unstructured markdown, because it's not XML anymore, which is much, much easier to validate. Right? You gotta have to have some tool runs over the markdown and says, okay, you did not mess it up, nor did you inject JavaScript that will hack my customer's you know, mobile phone. That's what I mean by validation. Right? But more to the point, it usually means like you didn't deliberately change the text bold green. Because that's usually what writers do. They get all excited. They want their, their highlight to be, you know, I want you to notice my note, so I'm going to turn it red. And they'll inject, you know, inline CSS, for example. That kind of thing. All right? So we did have to build that. And then another change is instead of monthly freezes, 
for builds where you stop writing because you can't change anything now because now you got to build the stuff and make sure all the links work and then the colors and the images and all that stuff. Instead, we were uh, every change I push, I push whenever I want, and the whole thing builds right then for that change and stages instantly. Uh, static in the sense that once it's there, it's static. There's, of course, JavaScript in the HTML pages, so it's not static in that sense. So we can dynamically replace the language. For example, locales, localization is all driven off whatever your browser locale is. So in that sense, it's not static. Uh, but if you mean that there's a single HTML file that loads, yeah, it gets built, gets converted from Markdown the same way typically in our XML-based systems, and ours was before, that the XML got converted to HTML. So ultimately, when it's staged, yeah, there's, there's HTML on the, web, on the website. Um, but the main, main thing is that basically we happen to uh, publish, we push, today we'll push five times uh, to our website, uh, maybe more. But typically we push three times, once in the morning, once after lunch, once at night. Um, however, that is just a choice. Uh, we can turn that off at any time, and every time a writer pushes something, it goes live, just right then. Right? Um, it, this is part of that open source agility thing. The truth is, most writers, if they're validating and stuff like that, and of course we've got other validators, for example, swear words, we can you know, detect whether somebody's used a swear word. Or, you know, it, we, usually that's not a writer problem, it's usually a dev or PM problem. Um, <laughs> But, um, but so we do things like that, right? But as long as you pass those tests, we can just spit you right out live, right like that. That's a different mindset than we've got everything ready for a release and it's all clean and nifty. So there, you have to have a staging site and you have to have a review process and those are very human processes that you have to implement. Um, let's see, and professional writers, okay, this is the big one that really changed. Professional writers changed to everybody became a professional writer. Um, ten years ago, we worked hard to find people who knew how to write. Now we work hard to find people who know how uh, computers work, software works, how to use computers, and then we try and figure out whether they can think well and write acceptably well. Because it turns out that it's easier to train a person to write relatively well than it is to find somebody who understands that to find somebody. Uh, who understands the technology. So we start, instead of before where we look for writers who understood technology, now we look for people who understand technology and then hope some of them are writers. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, they're now not as professionalized as writers, which, you know, we're all professional writers, so makes, that sits there and makes us go, wait, 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 usually. I certainly did 10 years ago, right? Um, we've really made that change. It turns out that Lots of people can be great professional writers if you give them tools that are simpler and you give them more editorial support, which is the return benefit. So we can now spend more time working with writers to develop them, right, if they show promise technically and in terms of their desire to write and communicate and teach, right, than we could before when we had to hire somebody and they had to be just perfect or there was no reason to have them kind of thing. Everybody can be a professional writer. And 10%? We end up, oh, you can't really do it. But we're left with 90%, whereas when we did it before, we might only end up keeping 15% or 10%. Yeah? Yeah, do you have editors that go through what was written and make sure that it's consistent and uh, um, there's no... Uh, yes, yes, but not at that scale anymore. Yeah. 
We used to have, we now, I'll show you what we have. We have, uh, you guys know Acrolinks? Okay, so we have Acrolinks involved. And uh, we, we, sit, we use that as a suggestion system to target people who have writing issues. And then we focus our attention on trying to help those people learn to write, write uh, in a more structured and consistent way, more active tense, more active voice, and so on. However, what we discovered in software, and I want to say it's, it's clear in software, is that the attitude we had in 2006 was that it was our job to publish book quality documentation for people because they bought our product and they needed to use it and we owed them the quality they deserved they paid for. What happened is open source destroyed all that among other things. It turns out that most of the most famous open source software you use, the documentation sucks crap. It's horrible. And so in this, in software is the leading, you know, example of it. There is almost no open source software documentation that you can point to and you can say, wow, that's amazing, but that they only have like 20 pages. Like anybody can write 20, and I shouldn't say that. A lot of people, if they really focus on it, can write 20 good pages, okay? But 46 million? Not gonna happen. So it turns out that one of the things we discovered in the last 10 years is that the absolute professional quality and consistency can come as an incremental improvement later. It doesn't have to release that way. Because developers who need to use your product need to know how it works right now. And they will wade through almost anything if the information is there. Then you can get feedback from them and say, what did you not understand? What did you understand? And you can incrementally target those. And then you can use things like Acrolinks or other feedback mechanisms to figure out how you need to, who you need to help, who needs to be doing it. And then in addition to, do, to, to that, we do have regular reviews where we sort of read through a section of the documentation and try and figure out, you know, does it all hang together? Does it all, you know, we do read-throughs and everything like that. So. Could I ask you a quick question? Yeah, sure. Uh, could you clarify how you use staging? Yes. I'm going to even show you. Not now. Unless you, do you want me to do it now? No, whatever. All right, fair enough. Um, so, because of this collaboration we're going back is required to match the growth of words and so this is where we get back to um, working together which, which again uh, 10 years ago the structure of that was different uh, using the platforms that the customers use not the ones you want to use to produce your stuff. Right? This, this kind of thing is now it's like 2016 uh, if I remember my date right and now we think this is like duh. But in 2006, we wanted people to use one platform. So, of course, we use that platform, right? Um, we use data-driven support items to become documentation, not support. Yeah? What does data-driven mean in front of the word support? Um, so, if you get data that somebody needs support, that's it. Data that somebody, like a customer needs support? Sure. So, in our world, support is basically customers are telling us something they need. Right. Okay. Now, with documentation, documentation is, it can be thought of as support, always could, because they needed information. So that's generally support. But when we think of support in software and kind of, you know, for, for businesses, we typically think of somebody calling in, there's a contract, and somebody's got a problem already and so forth. What we now do is we do things like, and I think probably everybody does this now, but in 2006 it really wasn't that common. In 2006, if a customer called in to support and paid for, and you know, the company paid for that support, and they said, oh, we got a bug, 
or we don't know how to do this, our company wrote what was called a knowledge base article, which was basically this one article written by support, not by me, right? That was about this one case, right? That somebody might find if they had that one technical case, right? If there was a bug in the product, that bug would go back to the product team and they would hopefully eventually fix that bug as well. But documentation for the rest of the users who may actually have this problem never received that information. It was just out of the loop because we would write things about the way they were supposed to work. So when we say data-driven now, for example, all the support items are tabulated. We watch them as a stream. Every single call, all the metadata right, is watched as a stream. And although they still write knowledge-based articles for niche cases, if they get past a certain threshold for a particular subject, people are not getting it, even if there's docs for it. That we consider document data, data that is telling us that our doc sucks. Okay. So it's time for us not to go and file another KB article. It's time for us to go turn around and look at that doc. And I don't care how much we think it's perfect. It's not. And we have evidence. The customer can't read it and get the job done. They should never have to go to support. And so in that sense, we now have support becoming documentation, coming, and they're writing documentation with us and helping us write those, those docs. And so the differentiation between knowledge-based articles, knowledge-based articles going down, and our writing pool is getting larger because support now contributes to documentation more than they did before. Does that make sense? Okay. Or you, you're just following the knowledge-based articles documentation. Yes, yes. That's conceptually what we're doing, right? And it doesn't even matter which word you use, we're taking those same people with specific knowledge and we'll tell them, you write that knowledge-based article, but write it in doc form and we'll whip our editors on it and a bunch of other end user developer eyes and we can clean it up. And together we now make a better document for everybody, right? A lot more precise for the niche case because those, those, those uh, support people are specialists in their particular niche, right? Whereas I might not ever get deep enough to master that one registry entry in Windows, you know, kind of thing. But it really, really helps. We can help them with their writing. Um, automation everywhere, everywhere more in yesterday. This is, if there's one thing that has to be said, the truth, if you're not into the software development, the one thing that has to be said is everybody has to have automated every single step that used to be a manual button you had to push to put a doc somewhere else or to give it to somebody else or to notify somebody else or to put it somewhere else, it should always be a program that does it for you. So you basically, when you're done with the human task of communicating, you're gonna push one button and then there will be a program that moves it through every single other thing, notifies you when you need to do something, other people when they, always automation. The truth of the old world was that humans specialize, the humans specialize in meaning, but we had them making processes. And the real truth is that we are optimized to convey meaning and to understand meaning. We need to get all the other processes out of the way, and that's what automation does, of every sort, right? Um, and then we do freshness and reviews, so that this is a part of the whole review and editorial process. So every week we have uh, a system that, again, automation. We have a system that keeps track of all the docs that go uh, past a month. And it creates a list and it looks up all the owners of those docs and it fires off a little email to all those people. If they don't respond and the next, next month they don't respond, then it fires off a bug to those people that they have to respond to. 
And um, managers and the humans get to decide how many of those cause a problem or how late it gets to be. That's a human decision. But the point is the automation does all that for freshness. Yeah. Um, so you mean like on the website where we have a version A and, version a and mm -hmm. uh, um, looking for documentation. Meanwhile, you've gone to version B, C, D, and uh, that information that I needed for version A is no longer out there. Yeah, that's something that that's absolutely something that you have to manage at the site level, right? So in our world, uh, first in, in MSDN, we had you know an extra whack in the URL for the version. Uh, most people do that. Lots of people now are driving versions off of GitHub commits and GitHub labels, right? So if you're driving your documentation through GitHub, you can put a label on a particular commit. And then people can actually search for that label and get the, the version of documentation at that precise moment for themselves, right? We don't do that automatically for people. What we do is we build a versioning into our website. So there's an extra whack in the URL. You can still do that in our GitHub repo, which is public. So anybody can clone all of our topics, down, download them, and prop their own internal website and hack them up. They, you know, they can re republish them. It's all open source. I mean, we get mad at them, but we can't do anything. It's open source, right? And if customers want to republish our documentation, God bless them. That means they're interested in our product, right? Or at least that's our thinking now. Ten years ago, we would have called the lawyer and said, hey, would you? So you never remove anything? Huh? No, we don't remove anything. So no, yeah, sure. Um, I would say this. Uh, so product documentation is forever when it's supported. When it is not supported, if it goes out of support, it is not deleted, it's always available. If not on the Wayback Machine, God bless it, right? Um, then it would be available in his GitHub history. We wouldn't worry about somebody who was like needed docs for 12 years ago. That's their problem, right? But, but it, we would never take it off. Like, we would not go destroy it. There's no point to that. Git is forever anyway. Git seems to be forever. Uh, let's see. Uh, we had to drive the changes from the top. This is all about corporate cl culture. Um, uh, let, me, let me get all these down. Whoops. Let me get all these down. Uh, this is just stuff we had to do to change our, our way of thinking. Right? So basically, if Scott Guthrie, who is now number two at the company, at the time, Satya was his boss. Satya moved up, and Scott became Satya. Satya Jr. <laughs> right? Um, so if that had not happened, none of the PMs and devs would ever change their minds. They would not contribute at all. It would have been writers, and um, uh, you know, I mean, it just wouldn't have happened. Uh, but they made it their mission to do it. Uh, Balmer was gone. Um, Balmer, uh, Balmer was a good businessman. I will say this about uh, Balmer. Um, he had two problems. One, one is that uh, uh, the biggest problem was that he, his job is he, got high, he, had to, he took over the company when he had to take care of Bill Gates' mess. And so I think a lot of people noticed that Steve was unable to, to uh, appreciate the rise of devices and phones not just Apple, but also Android, and also websites and social, things like that. I think that he missed those for sure, and uh, that was obviously a mistake. 
Um, but he was occupied trying to um, overcome the, the mess that uh, Bill Gates left him in terms of legal issues and things we couldn't do because at some point we were um, too much of a monopoly. And when you're dealing with that, it's hard to sort of pay attention to the other things. So I have to cut Steve a little bit of a break. That said, um, I'm very happy Sacha is my CEO. <laughs> Um, no, uh, Steve, in this case, Steve would also say, you know, you got to change. There's no question. That, that old, those old days are gone. He wouldn't, he would have been, you know. Um, let's see. Let's see if, I, how many of these do I got? I got one. There you are. So automation everywhere. We made it a mission. Automation has to be on the client. We have link checking, metadata, check-in validation. Um, automation and source control. You have constant, the CI is a continuous integration. Every time you make a change, the entire build system cuts off kicks off automatically. You don't sit there and start a build after you check in or there's no other, it just happens. The whole chain of publication happens. Writer control is in control of that. Not editors, not release managers. Managers are out of the loop. I check in my own builds, I check in my own docs and I push them live. Nobody else says yay or nay outside of the validation checks that tell me that I'm not committing some sort of crime, right? So I, but the, the responsibility now devolves on me. It's not my manager gets in trouble if uh, my, my, my page is horrible. I get in trouble. It actually turns out that's better, right? Your, your page, when, when you're happy with it, it goes live. That's right. Nobody, yeah. nobody looks at it. My manager does not know when I publish. And it's always something that's very simple, like a, a git, git command, a series of git commands. Yeah, I'll be glad to publish something live right uh, tonight to give you an eye of a feel for it. Because when you see, say automation, you think of the, this big system that is set up that you have to learn, but you don't. No, as long as no, this is a system that does have to be built. It's big, yeah. okay? But each little pit is a little teeny bit. So all I do is I have to just push into Git, okay. right? But there's something watching my Git repo that says, ah, and then from there on out, it all goes through that system. So yes, the system is complex, and in this sense, somebody has to develop it. it has to, it's software now that does that work. But you only have to learn how to push the first button. So, when, when you, so you've got your copy of your Git repository on your machine on the beach. Um, that is where I do most of my writing, yes. But when you, uh, when you push, you push to GitHub? Yes. And up there, there's this automation. Chart. That's correct. Is that, is, is that replicated on your machine? Um, I have various programs that are local to my machine, both on Mac and Windows. I can show you some of them. And they do things for me like, um, I want to change this name, the name of this file. Well, there are 4,724 topics in my repo right now. Any, and at least 300 of them linked to this one file is very important. But I'm going to change the name now. Well, now I've got to go hunting for those links, right? So I've got a tool on my local machine that just says, oh, yeah, this link, now make them all this link. One commit, you're done, right? So those kinds of tools you have to have. Otherwise, those kinds of changes, especially like, if, like 10 years ago when I was working with MSDN stuff, if we had to change a file name, um, our file names ended, in fact, I can even show you, they ended in, all, in this funky GUID. Let's see if we get, let me get up here. Um, we don't need that anymore. MSDN service management. Uh, let's see. Rest reference. Okay. So this is an old 
reference page. And I don't know if you can see, let me see if I can boop, 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 boop. No, it doesn't do that. No, it's doing it down here, but it doesn't do the URL. So the URL is some sort of URL that looks like normal human URL. And then this last part is ee460799.aspx. So that number lives forever. And it's in a database somewhere in this system. This is the old system, right? And it lives forever. So when I want to change the name of this file, I might actually just replace the content but keep the file number. Because it's so hard rewriting all links. So that, that all the links to this file. So if I did do that, now I got to go decide. Now do other files that are already linking to this file number now understand that they're linking to different content? So now I'm in this weird situation. Is the content close enough that I can leave the link? Right? Or is the content different enough that I got to go find all the other, remember, 40, 44, 46 million topics? Okay? Different versions, all this kind of stuff, different languages. So I had to have a database. There's a database that knows all the links in all 46 million topics. Okay? So if I need to change that number or change links to that number, I have to have a special tool that looks into the database that knows how to tell people. <laughs> Don't do that one anymore and fix it, right? That's pretty complex, right? No more. None of that stuff. You want to change the, the URL is the file name. You want to change it? Change it. But you got to change the, the, the links. Interestingly, the responsibility to change other people's links is now yours because you're the one breaking them. And in, software, in, so in the software world, if you introduce a breaking change, it's your job to fix all the tests and all the other code, right? Well, if they're in somebody else's repo, how would you know? You have to figure out who's dependent upon you if you and be a good citizen, uh -huh. right? So, but when you, when you make a change... And you're going to need tools for that, right? Yeah. Because it's hard to do it manually. It's too big. Go ahead. So when you make a change, if you want to see this change, you have to push it live. Uh, no, we have local builds as well, if you want to just see how it looks, kind of thing. But it loses all that special automation that happens up on GitHub. So you have three stages, right? Um, actually, three, four, four, four stages, now that I think about it. So I, and I can show you how it all works if you want to see. Uh, first, there's the local build. I can examine it locally, right? That doesn't have all the fancy JavaScript and the Chrome on the website and stuff like that. Just does the HTML look like it's in the right structure? Do the images load properly? And so forth, right? If I push that to GitHub, now I have GitHub's rendering. And GitHub actually converts the markdown to HTML and shows you what the HTML looks like in their format, which involves things like you can click around on all the links to the other topics, and they'll actually navigate to the other topics, right? So you get a kind of a higher sense of fidelity there. The structure of your linking like the, the network of linking, now you can test there, where you can't really test it locally in the same way, right? So that's, I haven't even committed, a, submitted a PR yet. Then, when you think you got it right, you're going to submit a pull request to the main branch in GitHub. When that happens, there's a whole bunch of other webhooks that kick off automation things. There's the Acrolinks one. You're going to get an Acrolinks score. If your Acrolinks score is below 85, 
you're going to get a little message filed off to some database, and they're going to do that data-driven sort of, does Ralph get 83 all the time, but you know John gets 97? Maybe John needs to go talk to Ralph and give him some pointers kind of thing, right? So that'll happen. There's another one that checks all the links. Did you miss a link, but you didn't notice because you didn't click on it before, right? So now all the links are rechecked, okay? There's another one that has to do with whether you can merge. Do you change something that somebody else changed at the same time? If, you're, if you've used Git before, you, you, know, you understand that this happens. Even any really source control system will have a, something like a, you need to decide which, one, which string wins kind of thing. Um, so that'll all happen. When you're done with your PR, you submit a PR, now you're going to get a staged version. And that uses the real code. So that gives you a website experience. It's got all the Chrome, the JavaScript's there, the whole, the whole product is there. You can click wherever you want to go. Is it working? And then you request it to be merged. It's merged. Then it goes live to the outside world. All of that can happen in a space. The fastest it can happen is about 11 minutes. Uh, no, no, a pull request is a request to merge to the main line, right, master branch. At, when that happens, there's, there are mergers, committers, people who are designed to make sure that you've done everything right at the last stage, but you've got a, they've got a bunch of help for that, right, all the automation checks and stuff like this. Um, and then, but they're going to make sure that everything you're doing lines up with what other people are doing. It's sort of a last check, you know, sort of thing. But as part of that PR, one of the things that's going to be checked is what does it build correctly and stage correctly. And that staging is an inside internal site, so it doesn't go outside. It's only I can see it, right? Secured for the corporate corporation. And if it builds, the merger will also check that build and say, yeah, it does look right. You're right. And then they'll merge you. And when they merge you, you don't have to do anything else. They don't have to do anything else. They just push merge. And that, then the whole automation gets kicked off, and that's, that PR gets pushed to live. Yeah? And which organization manages the infrastructure? Is it a development team? Is your IT team the doc team? Yeah. Yeah. The doc team has an IT team with okay. developers oh. that are assigned oh. okay. to do this. Okay. Yes, that's correct. Um, well, uh, we're pretty expensive. <laughs> no, um, um, I will actually, I, I will say that the infrastructure to serve a site this size is always expensive because of the demand on the site. If your site doesn't get that many hits, right, but we're talking about, like, the, this is one of the world's top 20 sites. Top 20, I think it's actually 37. So, well, uh, that was last year when I looked, okay? At that scale, everything's expensive. Not because the infrastructure is that expensive, but because of hardware and the maintenance is. Computers break. Mm -hmm. People have to notice. People have to stay up all night with pagers and, you know, things like that. At that scale, everything's expensive. So, it's not really that. Um, I happen to know that building the new site, which I was going to show you, Building the new site has a dev team of 18, a PM team of six. PM team of six. Um, and basically, we're all the testers. There's, you know, and when it's running, how big a maintenance staff? 
Oh, probably it'll all fall down. I bet you there's probably going to be only one or two devs assigned to it. Right? Building it is a different thing than maintenance. Um, I would say one or two devs are going to be assigned to it, and they'll probably increase. They'll probably have two or three IT people in design to monitor, monitor it. Um, actual maintenance of a site that size, again, will fall on, because it's on the cloud now. We don't have IT people running around to make sure the servers are spinning. What you did is you built it, so if the server goes down, you just go move to a different server. So now that it's in the cloud, mm -hmm. it doesn't cost nearly as much uh, in terms of human personnel to run. Developing it is a different thing. That, 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 that's expensive. However, what I'm going to show you, maybe if we get to it at the end, um, is in fact uh, an open source product. And you can use it. You can just download it and use it. We're using .net, dot, dot .exe, and it's an open source product. You can serve it. You can serve it. You can run it on your computer here. You can serve, put it in the cloud. That's what it is. That's what we use. Now, everything we use now is open source. That MSDN thing I showed you, that's all gone. I'm going to get past the data for a second. Data is important. How's that? Um, this was uh, stuff I did last year. This was um, a network graph uh, for all the search terms that would land on uh, Azure. So it's very pretty, and it taught us a lot about the fact that we were getting tons of people talking about Linux and open source things. And that was very, very important, even though we were not a company that was well known for Linux and open source. When you say land on Azure, you mean when somebody did a Google search yep. for Sistema, they'd get Azure? No. What would happen is people would, as you can imagine, people would type into the search engine whatever they wanted. The question is, if they clicked something in that search that landed on Azure, we would be able to capture the keywords that they originally used to search for. But they clicked on Azure, which meant they were interested in exploring at least. So that tells us that somebody, there's a number of people with, that are interested in Sistema that decided to find out what, what they could do with Azure. Sistema happens to be uh, Spanish for system, right? So what that actually indicated to us is that we were getting tons of people from Spanish-speaking languages going to us looking about, you know, with that, with that search word in it. Right? And you can find other ones here, I think. Um, where's the, there used to be, there was a bunch of German in there too. Anyway, it's a fun picture, so. So where, where, where we are, so now I can actually do this. Um, I'll, I'll show that later. But you can see we're in Git. Uh, this was last year, Tuesday, September 29th. Right? Um, in our repo, we had 353 JPEGs, 104 GIFs. We had uh, 1,400 PNGs, 3,300 topics at that time. We now have 47, 554, something like that. Um, and then these, this was overall topics. We actually had 2,700 2, articles. And then there were a bunch of includes um, that made up the difference there. Right, so .md being our, um, this is what it looked like. Uh, let's see, we get out of here. So this is what um, Azure looked like and um, still does. And you can go to the stuff that I do. We can go to compute and Linux virtu virtual machines. Um, and you use the command line interface. And th that's Chris. Um, I don't want to show anything that he wrote, so I'm going to show what I wrote. Um, let's see if I can find something. There we go. 
So this is, um, this is something that I wrote. This is where we were. This is where we are right now. As of yesterday, as of today, if you went to um, Azure, if you search for this topic, you would go to azure.com. This morning, we migrated to the new one I'm going to show you, um, which is, and I'm showing you the internal site. And let's see, make sure I get the, make, make sure I get the branch name correct. There we go. So this is the internal site where you're the first people on the planet not internal to Microsoft to see this. Not that that really matters that much. I'll reduce it a little bit so you can see everything in it. Anyway, it's a lot cleaner. Uh, here's my stuff. We'll go over to Linux. So um, are you going over a VPN or is this on the bottom? This, uh, this, this is actually secured at the, at, the, uh, at the cookie level. So for example, if you go here and you're not logged into the Microsoft with your corporate credentials, it'll just bounce you. So the fact is that I'm already cached. I've already cached my corporate credentials with the browser, the operating system in the browser. So I can just go in. You could type this URL till you're blue in the teeth and you'll, you'll just get prompted for a corporate identity, which, you know, unless you have, obviously you're not gonna be able to see it. Um, so this is what it looks like. And then of course, I've got to find mine uh, because mine are better. Uh, that goes without saying. And let's see if they did it here. Then they didn't. Uh, the developer, the developer team. The developer team. Yes. So we sat down with them and we said, "This is these are the features we want. We can't the Azure, okay. the Azure development team, the other website, mm -hmm. which was the site we went to after MSDN, mm -hmm. right? MSDN is now dead, gone. I mean, it still exists, but but we're going to be migrating off of it completely. And it's about time because that software is 30 years old. Nobody, basically, nobody knows how to fix it, right? No, liter quite literally, it's the, one of the biggest IT lessons on the planet. There is not a single developer in, that wants to touch that code. They don't know where to start. They, it, it's dead. It's a dead, dead thing. Anyway. Um, yeah, it was a model uh, for, for documentation. It did, I have to say, it did amazing work for the work that it is. So there's me, again. But now I look really cool. So I feel much better now, right? Because I'm cool. Um, it's much different. You can do things, you can do all kinds of fun, fun things, and I'm not here to demo the site, but you can, you know, if you don't like white reading, you can change it to dark, which is nice, and then if you don't like, pretend you're a, pretend you're a oh yeah, there you go. I like that. And you can type, you can do word wheel typing, so uh, VM, you know, this, it, it automatically sorts the topics in your, in your TOC, so you can do a node or a node, so you can, just select the things you're looking for. Um, it's got a lot of lovely features and bells and whistles, and I can demo this till the cows come home, but it's really just, the point is to show you what I'm doing. Now, um, let's see, what time is it? Um, we've run past our hour, and I don't wanna, I don't wanna hold you up. Um, and also, at some point, I'm gonna get hungry. We always run past an hour, and you should have eaten already. Well, I did, I did get a little bit of hungry, I did get a little bit of food, so I'm not hungry yet, but, um, I'm happy to have, answer more questions or whatever, but I thought I'd maybe give you an idea of how the system actually works, what it looks like. Sure. Yeah. 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 So, so basically, when you crop, uh, you're basically making it everything uh, open source, right? Yes. And that, and you're based, and for, 
This, this website, you can download the engine, you can clone it and run it yourself. And that you are open and that you're basically getting a lot, uh, basically you're getting a lot of input from a, uh, more contributors and basically calling the 5% of good, uh, good contributions uh, and put it to your uh, website basically, right? Uh, I, should be, I should clarify, when I say 5%, so we actually don't get a lot of con con uh, public contributors, non-Microsoft contributions. And I think that's more of a point in time. We're getting a little bit, a few more uh, every sort of third month. We get a couple more people who want to offer a little bit more content. Um, we're at a point in time where, although we're getting a lot of credit in the software and development industry for really embracing Linux, Mac, and being um, very open sourced about the things we're doing, that is the right move for the company. Um, we're just a different company now than we were 10 years ago, and that business model is dead. We can't, that's, that's a done deal. It's not a, for us, it's not a question. We can't, the world is not gonna be running Windows. I'm not running Windows, okay? But in the real world, people think still that we pay for everything we do, and so they basically don't offer us stuff. Like, the, 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 in the sense of an open source contrib contributor model, in the way I think you mean by other non-Microsoft people. You can, you can contribute to our documentation directly in GitHub, yes. In the sense that our repo is right here, right? I'm gonna do um, Azure, uh, Azure Docs. There it is, okay? That's our documentation right there, okay? If I, if so if I you contribute something and, and I issue a full request, I'll get the same automated treatment and everything. Yeah, so all you do is you clone our repo, right? Pull a new branch, make a change, submit a PR back to our repo, and that kicks off a whole automation. So all of a sudden, bells and whistles. If it's my article you're fixing, for example, or adding material to, but since I wrote it, obviously, it's adding material. Clearly, I didn't make any mistakes. Um, then I'm going to get a little thing that says, hey, there's a pull request against your article. You want to go review it? So I go back, and I look at your PR, and I say, hey, this is great. Thank you. And I'll put in a little, type in a little thing, right? Thank you very much. Appreciate the help. Um, we, just, we just merged it. And so as soon as I say sign off, that triggers another button that goes to my merger. And the merger guy reviews it also to make sure that I wasn't lying. And then he just merges it. And when it merges, it'll go live at the next push to live. So if you do that, say at 2 in the afternoon, you're live at 5, basically, is the way it works. However, relative to your question, we get 50 of these a month, maybe 50. And they're all typos. They're all typos. Nobody contributes real stuff. We, this is a problem that... I think this is a problem with us. This is not a problem. This is, we're a major corporation, and developers are just like, it's our job to publish the right material, so I don't need to help you. It's that kind of, we're in that moment in time where nobody thinks we're open source. They think we're paid. Therefore, why would they bother? Not like the, the open, this is not, these are not people contributing to Docker or whatever, you know. Not yet. No. What we were depending on, you're asking a very good question. I don't want to convey the wrong impression. 
We are not dependent on non-Microsoft contributors at all at this moment in time because our culture, as I said, the culture of the environment we're in, the market culture, doesn't support that. Nobody's writing for us. They're fixing typos. They're telling us we got the, wrong, got the corner comma in the wrong place. Good for them. I mean, we're happy to do it, right? Okay. What we mean now is that whereas before only professional writers wrote our documentation, we have now anybody at Microsoft who wants to write a doc because they know something can contribute a doc. So we have docs on technology in Azure or cloud or, you know, like Amazon Cloud or, or like GCE, if, you know, DigitalOcean, any of these things, if you're familiar with cloud, cloud uh, platforms. Um, we have people that know like super customized physics software in Linux. And so in their spare time, they're like, wouldn't it be cool if I wrote an article on that, you know, for Azure? And so they sit down and they do it and then they send it to us. I've never heard of this person before. They don't work for me. They're a tester off in some, you know. We get articles from people who are evangelists in France or Turkey, right, who are like, I love MySQL and I want an article in the documentation of Azure for MySQL. Ralph's not going to get to it, so I am. And so they submit an article, they submit a PR. So that's what we mean when I said scaling up internally at Microsoft has provided the same benefits that the, in the open source world is provided publicly. So one of the... Yes. One, oh. Go ahead. So one of the things that um, we writers do um, is, to, is to filter a lot of the stuff that comes from developers that they think is really cool and we think the uh, people who are reading our documentation will be totally uninterested. Yes, that's uh, the most common. The other one I find, uh, just to have fun with you, um, is that the PMs who are uh, just certain that this is the use of their product when no customer actually uses it that way at all. So, so how, how does this model of, of collaborative documentation handle? Yeah, we just tell them, no, we're not taking that, we're not merging that topic. Can you provide us when a, with a business case? Like that, I'm, uh, not you, but, but them. We will say to them, you know what? I have not heard, I've been to, I've been to six conferences this year. I, I ride Stack Overflow constantly. I got the live feed from the forums from the support team and no one, no one has said that this is worth our effort. Are you going to promise to update it? Like when you go on your merry little career, are you going to continue to own that content? Because if not, we're not merging it. So now a developer who really is committed to that will actually go ahead and merge them. They say, yeah, actually I will own it. <laughs> now we don't have any resources in the game. They do, right? So it's not like we just randomly collect more documents and we have more ownership. That doesn't happen. He owns it. So what will happen is, that freshness month rolls around and he gets an email. Did he update it? No. The second freshness month, he gets a bug. Did he resolve the bug? No. Third month? Boom. Immediately triggers a review of his document. We go to look at the metrics. Who's looking? How many people are looking at that doc? If it got five page views in three months, forget it. Yanks. Dead. Call it. It's, we pull things, but GitHub doesn't forget. You want to go back and find it, it's in GitHub. So who's that review? And that's not, that, we, when I say we don't pull versions, we do pull documents. So for example, if there's lots of articles that are like about 
something that just doesn't work anymore. There could be any number of reasons. It's not just that, that the product change, it's that, in fact, that, that actually was an insecure way of doing it. You can't do that anymore. And there's a new article about that, but it's not that one. And we are not, we, we would be happy to yank that, for sure. We don't want people hurting themselves. Sorry, who's, who's we? Who's in the group that's making those decisions? Uh, that made the decision with the hypothetical developer? Oh, uh, well, the, the documentation team is responsible for the, for the content on the website. And so, of course, we have our managers. The, the writers have a pool of leaders that get together. There's editors. And we all have consensus for standards and things like this. And so when I, when I say after three months and we check the thing and then cut it, that's because we've all sat there and looked through the numbers over, the la over years and years of numbers of reading statistics and things like that. And we've gotten to the point where we realize that we can, we're, we're actually pretty good at devising a consensual uh, algorithm, or it's really more of a heuristic than an algorithm, that we follow in that case. And that's the one that I just sort of used because it's just off the top of my head. And of course, there are all kinds of niche cases, and we all are very, you know, I mean, we, there's tons of human years of experience there. And so the rules we follow are based on the consensus that we all come to. There's no particular, like the doc manager doesn't own that. Right? It's the writers with all, on all groups get together and sit there and go, no, that's okay, but then this and you know, those processes happen in the background sort of more slowly. But they're the ones that set policy. There's no management. Management hasn't set that policy. So how big is this doc team? Uh, doc team has uh, about, right now, I'd have to get about 350 writers on it. That's the doc team. Okay. Now, that's a lot of writers. Uh, most of them are in Redmond. A good chunk of them are in North Carolina. Um, and then uh, a not so insignificant portion are around the world. I have two colleagues. I have a colleague in Chicago. I have a colleague in the UK. I have a colleague in um, uh, India. And they're on my 12-person my, my team, right? So they're my frequent collaborators in that sense. Um, I'm remote for them. So that, you know, that's another thing. Um, but most are in Redmond. There's a, t there's a fleet of contractors and vendors, right? At any one time, we're, we're working with contractors. We definitely hire contractors to see how good they are. I mean, that's one of the best ways to, to vet people for being really, really a good fit for the jobs, for example. So we have a, and of course, uh, for things like conferences, we have Connect starting this week for us. So you need a lot of contractors and vendors to do a bunch of work when you run up to that, 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 that spike in work. Right? So we'll have more, and then we'll go down a little bit. But that's the core um, team. Most of those people are in Azure, but not all of them. A good chunk of them also write for things like SQL or Hyper-V or Windows Server. Active Directory has an Azure Active Directory component, but also has an on-prem Windows Server component. Right? So they'll write for both of those. And so it's a, there's a lot of shared resources there. But um, the command, the, the um, writer resources there are also in, include more than uh, 200 PMs and a good uh, another 200 or so devs and, and there's, then there's some marketing people who have written stuff for us and things like this. So above all, you know, I mean, we have probably a thousand active, semi-active contributors. I would say the core active contributor list is about 500, 550, maybe 600. So double, roughly, not quite double the actual formal writing team. And at that scale, we can actually have confidence that we can get bad writing done and we can either improve it because we have time to, right? 
or we can actually reject the bad writing, but we get so many more contributions that we get a lot more good writing done. That's the idea. Anyway, so uh, let's see. Git, uh, let's see, git master. So uh, git pull, let's get fresh with master. Hopefully our internet connection is still going. Yes, it, is. it seems to be. Uh, I will definitely stand in front of the screen. I should probably actually do this off to the side a little bit. Here, let me try and see if I can prevent everything. And I can increase the size a little bit just because people have. So if we do this, um, boop, find type name, let's count what we have. Uh, we currently have 5,644 markdown topics. So you can compare that with last year when I was doing the talk, and we only had 2,700. Um, we have currently one large repo for Azure. Uh, we're going to break it apart after this migration. We'll break it up into probably five. One of the things we discovered is that after you get a certain number of, of um, files and directories, GitHub begins to really have issues with it. And maybe some of you have experienced this before. Uh, we also have, it's a 1.4 gigabyte um, repo, which is pretty heavy. Uh, turns out it's all the images. <laughs> and um, we had just discovered in our migration that about 32% of the images are not used. So they were used the first time, but then somebody got a different image or whatever, but they never removed the image. And so we discovered we got just this image bloat. So we are adding more automation to go check to see, you know, do culling of images that are unused, just systematic culling. So that'll bring it down to about 800 megabytes. Um, we're going to actually move to a, uh, a system whereby the images are only in another repo. So the images will now actually be in a completely different repo than the content, um, which will help a lot. So how does that work with Git? If you call out these images, it's really not that easy to actually delete something. It's very easy to delete something. Um, but, I mean, Here, let me delete something. Oh, there's a very important topic right there. Xplat CI Connect. Uh, Xplat CI install. This is the talk doc. That, that's the document that um, is how you install the Azure thing. And you can see we have some metadata on the top. Uh, not too much, but uh, some of it's there. And then it's how to install the Azure CLI. So this is a very important topic. Um, we'll just queue out of this and we'll just say um, git rm xplat. Ooh, it gets slow when you ask to do this. Um, install.md. Okay, and now if you do git, right, deleted, git, uh, git commit, deleted, I can't type, but deleted, critically important <laughs> topic, right? And there it is. And I could do this, git push to my own repo, master, and I'll push it into a different name, test, delete, right? All right, so it's going ahead and it's pushed it up. Now if I do this, I don't have uh, xplat um, install anymore. It's is, gone. Is your, is your repo any small? Um, the repo is 
infinitesimally smaller. It's smaller by the size of the removed, <laughs> of the removed text. Yes, it's, it's smaller by it's smaller by the size of the diffgram between that commit and the previous commit. Because if you know Git, if you understand Git, you know it's a directed network graph of differences. It doesn't store files; it stores differences. Okay. Um, we, we try to get our marketing team using this system by telling them that we won't publish anything they give us unless they do it. <laughs> and it's amazing how much that provides motivation. They'll learn yeah. Git and they'll jump in there. Learning Git is a strong, <laughs> that's a strong <laughs> phrase. Um, so like for example, I can restore this, so I'll just, uh, I'll just go ahead and restore this. And so now it's back, right? Um, the, the problem with Git is that it was designed for code by developers who were very, very serious. It's genius in, in the way that it does network graphs by di dif differences. However, um, the commands you use to do the things you need to do are not humanly understandable. They make no sense and they're very, uh, they, they, do, they have misdirection. And the, the way it works is extremely confusing to writers. Anybody who's used a file to write a document will not understand Git at all because Git doesn't care about files. It cares about byte stream differences. That's it, okay? Which is totally, like, it's hard to figure out. Now, so when you say, do they, will they learn Git? No, but if we give them a list of 10 commands, they will do it. Um, there's also this, right? We, uh, here's another example. They can use this, which is, th this is just one editor. It could be any editor. This is ours. Um, uh, probably should get it a little bigger. Uh, this is um, VS Code. So for example, if they want to index, uh, they want it, that's the index. Let's get some other, t there's a TOC, okay? So if somebody wants to edit a TOC or somebody wants to put this in here, now they've got this, and they can just type and highlight like normal. And then when you go to push this, you just click this little button down here, and it says, well, where do you want to put it? And you go, okay, I want it in this one. And so you have these tools now with Git. I'm, I'm a developer, so for me, the command line, I, just, I know that I control the command line. Whereas when I look at a UI, even a beautiful UI like this, which I do use right, for a lot of things, you know what, I'm actually more talented on the command line. But for the marketing person, we just say, hey, look, this, this is great. You do this, then you do that, then you do this. If you modify this, right? This is VS Code. Yeah. It's got a Git integration. It's got Git integration. So this is, um, if you like it, um, it runs on everything in the sense that I use this the reason I use this one is that it runs on uh, Windows, Mac, and Linux. So it doesn't, again, it's, and it's completely open source. You get the, if you want to modify it, copy it, it's free, everything. So again, this is the open source idea, the cross-platform idea. If somebody already knows this or has downloaded this, they can use this with any markdown anywhere on any platform, all they want. It's totally fine. And if, if this is VS Code. Yeah, it's called VS Code, Visual Studio Code. And it looks like this. Did you have 
Hunter at the top, but of course, no, on the code page. Oh, sure. Sure. So a tail, our tables of contents in the new system. I mean, like the sidebar navigation menu. This this thing? Oh, the sidebar navigation menu. You mean like on the website? Yeah. So this this part over here. Yes, that is a TOC file, and it is. It looks like that. It is just our TOCs are just Markdown. So again, it is low low tech. These are not. This is not special. They're just headings. Like if you're familiar with Markdown, it, they're just links. That's it. Do you create these manually? Or you can create them any way you want. Uh, originally, when we were doing our port from Azure.com, I wrote a program that went into the actual Microsoft the Visual Studio solution, grabbed the ResX file out and the JSON file that generated that, and I actually wrote a program that generated the TOCs automatically for the first migration. And after that, we gave the TOCs to the writers and to the PMs and said, file PRs. Do whatever you want. Have a great time. Literally, that's what we did. But keeping the TOC in sync with the actual with what? topics that you're using. We have a tool that runs over every single topic and tells you which topics are not in TOC files. But you still have to put them in there. Well, we could write a file, we could write a program that manually just inserted them randomly. But when you get to the deciding what a good informational navigation structure, a semantic stru learning structure is, humans do that better. <laughs> so that's actually where we, we come out. Right? If, I'll tell you what we do do. For example, this is just con conceptual material. So this is a book, basically. Humans construct books because we write narratives. We love narratives. We want a story. You go from here, you go from there. Okay. I would never try to ha write a program that you know, created a TOC with conceptual topics because you, unless you had some sort of schema in advance about what these topic titles were and how that all worked, you could never, you'd, you'd have to assemble it randomly. But for reference work, no. For references, we examine the product programmatically and we build the TOC out for reference automatically. Nobody does that stuff by hand. And they, not even if we had the manpower to do it by hand, person power to do it by hand. We would not do it by hand because you, you would always get out of sync with the actual product. And above all, in software and technical writing, accuracy first, comprehensibility second. Despite the fact that comprehensibility is pretty important. <laughs> what about an API template? Let's say you want to have a consistent template that everybody follows these sections and it looks a specific way. For APIs, we have those, yes. And, and you do that in Markdown somehow? Yeah, sure. You just say, what is the structure of Markdown? So for example, let me go to another uh, one of these topics. Right? There actually is a template. You can see the initial metadata is in a YAML format, if you know YAML. Right? But it's just a sort of you know, colon separated line oriented format. So that, that metadata is mandatory. You can't check in without that metadata. And there's a little tool that will generate it in that format for you. So you don't have to worry about messing it up. Okay. And the metadata you're looking for is pretty straightforward, right? Some authors are involved. Here's an author. Uh, this is a GitHub author because the GitHub, the author may not be us. It could be somebody else, right? Here's the manager who's just an association. And here's the editor who nominally gets to review that and so forth. Um, you can see there's a description. So here is the title of the topic as it appears on the web page. Here is the title as it appears in Google when you look it up. 
This description is the description that appears next to the Google thing, you know, that little summary thing, okay? And so forth, some custom metadata services, automation, uh, some de de developer language, like if it's specific to C Sharp or C++ or something like that, right? So what ensures that that description is what shows up on the Google search? Uh, that's just the way it's built in HTML. It's a meta tag, and then we, and you know that Google um, populates the little summary underneath the search entry when it comes back on the page. They populate it from that meta tag. So it's just converted directly to the meta tag, right? That's done by automatic, uh, done automatically um, by the build engine, which is, again, open source. Anyway, so we were talking about the format, right? So the format here is very simple. You m this, this format we decided, this is conceptual, not reference, but reference could be much more structured, right? So in this sense, we've decided that the topic title must have one thing, and it, it must, there can only be one title in it. Everything else has to be two heads or fewer. We also have decided that second headings, let me turn this back light so we, not, we don't pretend we're developers. <laughs> so this will be the single head, the H1, right? This will be the H2, but notice the H2s are also then automatically populated over here. So now H2s are dynamically linked so that you can jump for sections from the, from the side without thinking about it as a quick way to get up and out. That's just a convention, right? It is a template, and we've just decided that's what we will do. Um, I saw you raise your hand there. So basically, uh, as long as you follow the format, it, based, it, it formatted automatically for you, basically. Yeah. And if, for example, if I put in two H1s, it'll, it'll, it'll blow up. It'll say, I'm sorry, you can't do that. But in your API template for your parameter section, yeah. Yeah, and we, we have validation for that. It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't happen. Yeah, more to the point, what we've done is automate the creation of the markdown in the first place. So we examine the source code and then spit out MD files for that, for, for the writer. And we, what they are able to do is then check that MD file out and augment it, but they may not alter the structure. Yeah. And what we do is we extract the developer comments from the code and put it in there uh, automatically. And then the writer comes in and cleans that up, augments it, adds more information, and so on. Okay. Sense. Yeah. So when you have multiple authors like that, so uh, who gets the credit, the attribution? You got your right um, yeah, right now, we're going to get away with authors. We're going to destroy authors. <laughs> uh, we went at, on MSDN. If I found that MSDN article, I don't think, let's see if we still have it. On MSDN, there's no author. Right? No author. It's very rare that you see documents. Right. On, the, the, on ACOM, which actually I didn't see, but this, we'll just use this right now. On ACOM, there was an author, and now I still am at the top of my page. Um, but we've decided that in the new world, really author means l l sort of internally responsible human. Because it turns out with all these contributors, I don't know if you can see this. Let me go. Look at this. Look at all these contributors. I got four contributors to this article. Now it turns out that this guy's my editor. Um, that guy is my one of my main collaborators, as is Steve. Okay? I don't know what she did, and now that I see her face there, I'm a little suspicious. 
But she did something. And we're going to hope that it was good. Okay? However, I have worked with these two people on this document extensively. We've rewritten it, rewritten it, added material, fixed mistakes, and so forth. It doesn't make any sense. We've decided it doesn't make any sense to call me the author anymore. A third of the article is theirs. And maybe even the most critical technical ones. We don't know, right? Depending on your, who uses it. And so now we are going to get rid of the authors and we are going to only have contributors. And the contributors are pulled from GitHub. So if you contribute and you get merged, you are a contributor and you get in the list. The size of your contribution will determine the ranking. Okay? So if you rewrote the thing, you're going to be first. But in addition to which, we're going to get it off the real estate. We're going to move it over to the side. So you get to the information faster. Um, it's also driven by the fact that, as you said, it's pretty rare to see authors. Um, it, uh, Amazon doesn't have them. Google doesn't have them. So why should we really have them? I mean, like, we don't really care about that. But when we were thinking about getting rid of the author concept, we realized that the, really the author is only the person who sort of gets to make final decisions on the document and you know, merge things. It, it's really not an author anymore. Do people come to you to make contributions? Do you go to them? Uh, a lot of times things just don't happen unless somebody drives it. So who would you say is the main driver for most of your content? Um, well, there's a, there's a person on point. You either got the assignment in the beginning or decided on their own based on their information in the, uh, of customer need to write the article in the first place. So either somebody gets assigned the work item by the manager uh, responsible, somebody's got to write this article, I know you don't want to, but do it anyway, kind of thing, right? Or in this case, I, you know, I loved using Docker, so I wrote the Docker article before anybody asked me to, and then it turned out it was very useful. So I'm the author of the article. But, you know, it, it, it comes both ways, it comes both ways, yeah. Thanks for coming. Uh, sure. Everything is still owned by Microsoft and everything, right? Um, not anymore. It's in the GitHub repo. It's public. Okay. We call it ours in the sense of legitimacy. Everything we publish on our website, we support. Okay. But if you want to clone it and take it, it's yours. It's, uh, there's nothing we can do. It's open source now. Yeah. Say Docker machine create and Azure and this AMD. stuff. Yeah, all of those things. Is that uh, sure? Let's show you. You have to do by hand. Um, that's part of the writing, and in this case, let's find the let's find the 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 file. Um, let's see where that's going. It's going to be in virtual machines Linux um, Docker. There's the file. So this is actually the file. That is it. And so what you'll see is that this is just Markdown. And let me make that even bigger. Whoop, I didn't want to do that. That was a little bit too big. I was showing you the other stuff. There we go. So you can see that in this file, this is just, this is what Markdown looks like. So if, you're, if you do Markdown, right, the tick automatically gets converted to um, code, code blocks, right? Span code. And if you go down even further, so these are a bunch of conventions. So the triple tick, this is a code block as opposed to a span code, right? And then 
triple tick will take a language identifier right after it, and it will do automatic code colorization. Right? But the code colorization you have in this... In this this is the colorization is just that what the editor does to help you see Markdown. So this is why the editor is very useful if you're, you know, like some like developers use things like Emacs and you know stuff, they do stuff like that. They don't care about colorization. But writers, you know, I mean, we read so much stuff, and especially if you get older in years, maybe you bought one of these. You know, it's very nice to have a good visual experience, right? So this is what this does. And I like this because you can zoom out. Um, I actually write, um, I write on a 39-inch uh, 4K um, uh, HD TV. And I sit, like it's right here. Somebody snorting in the background here. So the TV is right there, and I sit right here with my reading glasses on, and I have this just wall of text in front of me. And it's just a beautiful experience. I feel comfortable, right? <laughs> Because I can make it this big, and it's sharp, 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 but it's still huge. You get to see all of it, right? Now, I'm a lucky person in the sense I got that big screen, but the point is that this, anything that makes the reading and writing experience easier, I think is a great investment in you. Just, I, I've worked long enough that I know how hard it is to write and write and write and write and read and write. It's just hard work. So anything I can do to make my world better, I will do. Yeah? Sure. I think Russia's trying to do that right now. <laughs> what do you mean? What do you have in mind? Internally, like, there's a hiring manager that says, hey, I want this document to be like this. Uh, yeah, they don't have power over us that way. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. So, like, today, Scott Guthrie saw our brand new site, the one you just saw that nobody else has seen. And Scott Guthrie reports to Sacha. And uh, Scott said uh, to my boss's boss, and my boss's boss's boss, Scott said, um, I want that all rearranged. Now, Scott is a pretty important guy, <laughs> you know. So tonight, my boss's boss's boss and my boss's boss are going to be sitting there going, trying to fix as many of that. But I, I was in the status meeting um, before coming down here um, at 4, and my boss's boss's boss said, uh, you know what? We can only do about 50 of those. We can't do all 83. Scott's just not going to get what he wants. And that's sort of the idea. It's like best effort, right? If Scott had said, let's break the model, we would have said, no. <laughs> no, no, no. We don't, we don't break the model. But, if, but all he wanted in this case is he wanted a reorder of, uh, uh, he wanted to get, you know, create a VM to be up top and not install the CLI. But he wanted it on every single landing page for all the services. And it's like, well, that's not a bad request. It's just so late in the game that there's, you know. So, um, so it really depends on the, on the ask, right? If Scott had said, break your template, like we were talking about the structure, we would have said, oh, no, 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 Scott, you want to give us a three months lead time, we can talk about why you think that's a good idea. But you're going to have to bring us data because every time we talk to you about what we do, you ask us to bring you data. So you got to do the same thing, right? Um, now, because I work in a good company, Scott like totally respects that. Like that kind of free play, despite the fact that he's 16 levels above me and owns half of Western the United States or something. Um, 
that doesn't mean that we don't, we don't have a good conversation about why we make structural changes. But if Scott says, please flip the icon, well, sure, we'll bust our butts to do it, but we're not going to kill her. We can't do the last 30. There's no way two people, there's only two people working tonight. Everybody else has been, I've been working weekends for months and, you know, like we're done. I'm sorry. It's not going to, it's not going to happen tonight. So, I mean, if that gives you a feel for it, I don't know. Um, I don't know. Was that good for you? Great. I'm happy. It was fun. It's fun to talk about this stuff because really basically I never get to talk. <laughs> um, you were asking about tools. I'll just show you really quick. This is uh, one of the tools I wrote to um, automate the things that happen. So, huh? This is Bash. Bash scripting. This is a very short one. And basically, we have uh, 80, 81 landing pages for 81 services that are in Azure. And they had to, in theory, what's supposed to happen is our new system is supposed to build the PDFs for each table of contents automatically as part of the build and include it in the, with a little drop-down, you know, kind of download the PDF. Unfortunately, that didn't work. So I had to write a tool that found every single PDF in some other directory and then found all the landing pages and inserted this static URL into the landing pages programmatically. So I wrote that. So that's what it is. And so all those tools, all these tools are basically, here's a tool that finds links. So that tool will find every single link in every single markdown that I pointed at. So if I want to know like who's linking to me, Right, I can run that tool and it'll return all the files that have my link in it. So, so all kinds of those tools. You work with, uh, yeah, we share the, so we share, okay, again, back to the open source. There's a GitHub repo and we put all of our tools that we write together on a GitHub repo and then we, together, we recommend things or we fix and like people work on my code and I work on other people's code, right? So like this one does links, but it doesn't do HTML checking, like it doesn't check for 404s. Well, a guy named Larry, who's a good colleague of mine, a good friend of mine, he grabbed my program and wrote a 404 link checker and put it into VS Code so that when I go here, I can now actually just type Alt-L and it goes and checks every single link, including HTML, for 404. But it's my code that he, st that he stole, that <laughs> bastard. No, but it's my code that was the start of that. So he took that code and then he pulled it further so that we have a link checker inside the system and we don't have to worry about staging. And in fact, this is, uh, this is a bug because it turns out that MD, if it doesn't have the query string at the end of it, it it's there. And so now I got to get, get, get on Larry's case to fix the query string bug. So, so most, of, most of your writers could write a bash script? No. <laughs> well, you, had, you had to in Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Previous file, that must have taken a long time. Uh, no, I mean, well, now you get, to, you get to talk. That's just experience, right? I mean, like, if, if you, that's not really, like, being good. It's like if you do something for a while, you know these things, right? It's really experience. It's just experience. It's not anything else. Um, I'm not a big fan of, the, I'm not a big believer in the sort of the genius developer theory of the world. It's really experience that is that makes a good developer, not, not sheer brains, although there are some brilliant people. Um, so no, in this case, I would say that uh, of, 
of the 300 people, 350 people we have, developer writers are in a, in a substantial minority. There are probably 10 or 15 people that can really write code um, in that group. I would say probably half of them can read code reasonably well, right? Understand how to read it, understand what's going on, but they don't write programs. So writing programs are pretty, you know, uh, it's hard to find people that want to write content, but also develop, because developing pays more. So why wouldn't you not do that, right? But I just like it. I love what I do. It's a great thing to do. And I just happen to have been a developer for years. So for me, this is a normal thing. Um, and um, we share, the people who do development stuff share the tools and we improve them and we hand them out to the writers and then the writers use them. And so that improves the productivity for everybody. So it's a nice thing to be able to do. Um, and as a developer, even that simple script, like what Larry did, that's actually a, that's not a, this is not an internal extension. It's actually an external extension. Anybody can download and use it. And I contributed to that. And that makes me feel good, right? It makes me feel, that's the open source part. It's like sharing the stuff that you knew needed to happen. And you did it. So. Let's go home. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.